This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for simple payment solutions, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first 50,000 in transactions, fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash moment. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a legendary writer, Jerome Charon. He's written 50 books. My point of entry to his work, uh, I'd heard of him for years, but my point of entry was nonfiction, and it was Sizzling Chops and Devilish Spins, which is a book about ping pong, a subject that matters a lot to the two of us. Uh, you may know him from I Am Abraham, his incredible book about uh, Lincoln and the Civil War. But he is uh, a great writer, full stop, and one um, whom other writers regard in the highest way possible. I mean, Don DeLillo has written and talked about him. Tom Bissell has written and talked about him. Jonathan Latham, Michael Chabon. I mean, these are people who routinely say, I don't do blurbs. Uh, I won't even talk about another writer. And if I do, it's only to shit on him. And these people all celebrate Jerome Charon. And, and when when Jerome walked in here and was asking about this podcast and I mentioned some stuff about it, he said, uh, hey, as long as it's about people loving books. And I thought that was a great place to start. I mean, do, do you feel that uh, that's more rare now? Well, I I mean, I grew up in a culture of books and... When I read a book now and just look at the print on the page, it gives me an incredible amount of pleasure. I mean, even if it's an old, a former student and just going through a book that, that maybe will reach 15 or 20 or 100 or 200 people, just seeing the print on the page. And because I see the print as a kind of music, I read the cadences into the sentences. So books matter to me. And, and somehow... Um, I don't know where the culture is going. Everyone speaks in different directions. We have no idea, you know. But language is with us. Language grows. Language changes. And one of the most difficult things I had is that when I was living in France, I wasn't hearing everyday Engl American English spoken. Right. So I lost a certain vocabulary, even in basketball, because I was always watching basketball. And they were talking about things like being in the paint. I never didn't know what the hell that meant. Because <laughs> you were you were teaching at the Amer at, at American University, American University yeah. in, in Paris, Paris for a long time, and you would right. just come back here for what summers? I'd come back here for the summers or part of the year, and language was changing right under me, you know, and it was terrifying. You know, you know I feel the same way about books. Yeah, I I have you know an, an iPad and, and I have the Kindle app and the Books app, and I, I use them. And occasionally I'll listen to I listen to audiobooks. I use Audible, like you know. Um, but like the your new book, um, Bitter Bronx, came out just before the new Murakami book, yeah, which is an old Murakami book. And I I walked to the bookstore and purchased both both books in hardcover, yeah, <laughs> because that's how I needed to read. For some reason, the grounding in that is different to me. It's tactile also, isn't it? Yes, the physicality of the book. And the thing that I insist upon is that, for example, you know, we no longer have cloth covers. You know, they're made out of plastic shit. 
And I always insist that... The is that the technical term? <laughs> yes, yeah. okay, good. it is. It is plastic it is shit. shit. Yeah. Good. It is plastic shit, indeed. And I insist that it be black, because when it's black, you can't see the plastic as much. So that the physical book is very important to me. I always sort of generate what I want the book to look like. I mean, I want the pages designed in a certain way because I can't read the book if this if the print is too crowded. To me, it's like reading a sheet of music, and it's very important well, to I me. Well, I wonder if it's a kind of proof to you because I, when I think about your work, yeah. so much of your work is a... Uh, about a certain kind of promise, starting right foundationally, you know, the promise a father is supposed yeah. to take care of and protect you, right? And those things disappearing. Yeah. But in a way, the physicality of the book is the is this promise manif- made manifest. Yes, yeah. Which uh, so many things are not made manifest in the in your world of fiction. Right. Yeah, and you 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 have the language. The language, you know, the language can betray you. You know. But you hope that it won't betray you. You can lose the words. You can lose the vocabulary. But it's yours. It's your own. You know, you're a carpenter. You're, 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 you're building something. And, and you're building it piece by piece. And what you build may not, be, may not work. But it's still yours. It's yours. Yeah. I mean, this awareness even of, uh, you know, I was reading this interview uh, that an old friend of yours did with you um, your your old friend Frederick Tutton. Tutton. Tutton, yeah. is that how you say yeah. his name? Tutton. And uh, you guys were talking about the Bronx. And it's funny, you know, your new book is about your is a you've written three books, memoirs yeah. about right. life in the in the Bronx. But your new book is a book of short stories, though right. it reads like a memoir. Yeah. Um, even though they're fictional characters. But he asks you about the sort of paradise of growing up, or if it was a playground and, and you say, uh, it was a paradise of empty spaces, a garden where nothing would grow except bitterness and regret. I had one book in the house. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just wondering how that sort of spiritual deprivation and the other deprivation informed all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. But the, the thing is, to me, poverty is a poverty of language. I know if you're starving and you can't eat, you know, I, I can, you know, sound as if I'm, you know, being arrogant because, you know, we don't want to starve. But there's another kind of starvation. That's the starvation of language. And that's the one thing, you know, I didn't have language. I didn't know that the New York Times existed because the candy stores only had the Daily News and the Post or whatever in the mirror. So what the fuck was the New York Times? I mean, I didn't know, you know, what was going on. But the thing is, what I realized later on in my life is that there was a kind of virtue in this because in the empty spaces, I was able to fill it with my imagination. And it's the imagination that allows you to travel wherever you want to go. It's not simply the language. You need that sense of an imagined world. And because I didn't have the language, I had to fill it with something else. Right. It's almost like the imagination gives you the water and then the words of the boat that you can use exactly. to, to yeah. travel yeah. Yeah. Uh, and go where you need to go. Yeah. You're always amazed by, by those masters like James Joyce or Melville or, or Emily Dickinson, for example, the way they use language. And you know you're never going to use language as well as they can, or Shakespeare is the prime example. But still, you're going to find a way to use language that will tell your story, because that's all you can do. And when did you start to have, uh, well, I want to ask you when you started to have an awareness of this, but this, this idea of loss, of these empty spaces, right. of like, uh, 
this combination that I, I think exists in, in much of what you write about, both in fiction and memoir, of somehow, I guess you're using the word imagination for it, but somehow intermingled, we there is this the possibility of romance and hope with the knowledge of loss and finality. Yeah, yeah. Is that a worldview? Because it seems to exist in your earliest. Is that a worldview you you came to late or? Early? Well, I mean, the the writing is naturally dark, but there's another element. <laughs> it's always comic. Yeah, sure. So when you can laugh, it doesn't really matter, you know. I mean, it's really it's really crazy, you know. That 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 the world gets darker and darker, and and you enjoy the darkness. The darker it is, the better it is. But somehow, the ability to laugh gives you a certain power that redeems the darkness. It seems to me, and that's the way I, I'm. A, look, I'm a comic writer. I might write about horrible things. But I'm still a comic writer. Yeah, you're a comic writer in that you'll come up with a name like Neversink yeah, that, right. for a character uh, in a short story in the new book right. that just gives you uh, the reader, a, 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 the name itself, a little buoyancy. Well, <laughs> that allows you, name, even though you know. <laughs> names are very important. Names define you in a way that, you know, and you go back to Dickens and look at his names. Or you go back to Shakespeare. I mean, it's the, the power of the name, the power of the word to evoke, it seems to me. That's, we're never going to lose that, no matter, you know, if, whatever takes over. If, if, if physical books disappear, we're not going to lose the power of the word, it seems to me. And is that, has that mattered to you from the beginning? When did, like, I, look, you are the, uh, I had Lawrence Block in here, you know, as right. my good friend yes. for a long time. Right. But uh, you got you got you got Larry by two years. You're two years older than Larry, yeah. so you're the oldest guest who's been one here. One year older. You're one, one year, year older than yeah. Larry. Right. He, right. Lied. he lied. I think to that, you. that I think that you're two years older than Larry. No, I'm one year older. Fine. Okay. All right, Block. Tell us the truth, motherfucker. Yeah. Uh, and I like calling a 76 year old guy motherfucker, but because um, I'm believing you now. Yeah. But uh, but as such, I want to deviate a little bit because I want. From, I don't want to just pepper you with questions that that I'm interested in. I really want to. Right. I really want you to be able to talk about what you're interested in talking about because you have you've done this thing that so many people wish they could. You've lived the life of an artist completely your entire you yes. know your entire life. As an apprentice, that's very important. I okay. see myself as an apprentice, and that's why Emily Dickinson is so important to me. She almost never published any of her poems. She had no idea that the world would recognize her work. It didn't seem to matter to her. She had the power to evoke a world and to remain in that world and to have an element of play. You can't lose that sense of play. And each time you write a book, you're, you're, writing, you're starting all over again. I'm an apprentice at 78. I know less now than I knew when I began. But that's great. So what? You're always learning. You, it gives you a freedom to think of yourself as an apprentice. I am an apprentice, Brian. I am. You always are. You know, each book has its own equation. Each book 
has its own probability. Each book has its own problem. And you've got to solve that all over again. You can't go from text to text with the same melody. Each book demands its own melody. So you've got to reintroduce that. You know, it's as if you're a musician and suddenly you wake up and you're tone deaf and you have to find the music again. Well, like I read about how you said that finding Lincoln's voice was its own thing that you had to do. It was terrifying because once you had Lincoln's voice, how the fuck do you get rid of it? (laughs) So Lincoln's voice is in everything I do. Well, Even when I'm in the bathroom, I'm speaking in Lincoln's still Lincoln. voice. I'm Lincoln. Uh, you and Daniel Day-Lewis, basically. Right. Daniel, the, I feel sorry for You him. guys are stuck. I'm You're stuck. both fucked. But your work, so take the Lincoln thing out of it, there is such thing as tone and voice. Right. And even though each book may be different, uh, certainly sizzling chops is its own right. uh, beast yeah. because you're actually writing in the rhythm of the game and you're capturing yeah. the, this feeling and, and spirit of the and game. And you can appreciate it because you play ping pong, you see. You can understand what I was able You can understand the basic chore I was able to do is write about ping pong from the point of view of the ping pong ball going across the net to recapture the music of the game itself. Yeah, you feel it reading the book. You 100% feel it reading the book. And that book stands out. And to me, it's different than much of your other other work because you were writing about something for which you have unadorned, uncomplicated love. Right. The only complicated part being you wish you were better at it. (laughs) Oh, you're damn right. I will never be as good as I want to be or anywhere as good as I want to be. But what was wonderful... I mean, good enough to kick my ass despite being 35 years older than I am. It doesn't really matter, Brian. The next day you could kick my ass. I mean, who knows? Who cares? But even that book... I, I, even that book turns, which just goes to, back to worldview. And, you know, I've, I've always wanted to make a movie about this, and I'm, I'm determined someday to do it. Uh, that book turns, in a way, very hard on the, on the day that Reisman had to play against exactly. uh, somebody who had a, uh, a soft bat. Yeah, yeah. And so that book, too, becomes about loss. And about the death, loss. loss and death. And, and also, when, when, you, when you think of Reisman, who was probably the greatest player in the world, really, suddenly his game disappears. And not only that, the idea of that not only was he a great player, he needed to be a showman, and that was his undoing. He needed to show off. He needed to do the trick shot. When you know, that's why I loved Marty. I loved Marty, and I and and to me, Marty was a tragic figure. Marty Reisman. Marty Reisman, who's one of the two main uh, characters about whom you write in that in that book. You go around the world and you write about lots of different people playing the game. Right. But what what is it about the possibility of greatness thwarted? You know, the blunt end of uh, hope that. That remains animating for you as a as a writer. Because I see him as an artist, and I see him as an artist never fulfilling his function. I see him as the having the beauty. I mean, if you watch Marty Reisman play, I mean, the beauty of his strokes, the beauty of his shots, but he never totally took it seriously. He, he always wanted to write about Marty Reisman, the money player. Well, right. I'm not a money player. I don't play for money. It's, if I'd played for money, I'd be a very shitty player. Right. So it's, it, if it's about money, it's not worth writing. It's too difficult. It's just too difficult to do. But what is it about do. his pride, the pride or, because, I mean, you know, greatness cut short, obviously Lincoln greatness cut short right. also. 
Yes, Lincoln's greatness was cut short, but he was a tragic figure. And, you know, he's lucky he hadn't been assassinated earlier. In, in other words, he did what he had to do. Once he did, you know, you know the Emancipation Proclamation came out of nowhere. I mean, this, where did this document come from? I mean, he invented an entirely new landscape. Sure. So he had nowhere else to go in some sense. So he was a man waiting to die. I mean, whatever fashion was going to happen, it was going to happen. But I guess for, what I'm, I'm interested in is for yeah. somebody who, for, for a writer who's so interested in these hard endings, right? The, these kind of final turns, did you ever expect that you'd be doing this this long and still be able to do it at such a high level. Is it surprising to you? Did you plan for it in any way? No, I didn't I didn't plan on anything. You know, you, you have good luck, you have bad luck, you know. But on the other hand, I came along when writers were welcomed into the university, so you were able to teach and earn a kind of living because I never thought of writing as a means of making money. And then when... That's crucial. Yeah, when, when books suddenly... For example, I do graphic novels, and yeah. the last one I did was enormously popular in France and earned a certain amount of money. But, I mean, I just, you know, for me, it's not about, it's not about anything except I wish I were the artist doing the art. I'm so jealous because I began as an artist. I began Oh, you wish you were the artist doing the graphic yes, <laughs> novel I mean, art? So, I mean, when I work with a particular artist, his name is Francois Bouc. I mean, he's such a genius when I look at what he does. I mean... It moves me. It doesn't matter that he's the one who did it and I didn't do it. I don't see my own participation. All I see is the glory, is the music, is the rhythm of what he's able to do. Okay. And, you know, maybe I'm trying to paint with words, but he can paint in a very strange way with images. I'm trying to paint. And if you look at, for, for example, certain artists like Van Gogh, I mean, he did almost all of his major work in the last 18 months of his life. He just went from painting to painting with a kind of, you know, shimmer that we'll never see again. Well, know. there was a, vo a voice uh, suddenly, like a voice appeared, right? Exactly. His, his, and, and so, but for you, you've, how did you recognize or did you recognize that you had control over this, over the voice and, and tone? Well, I mean... What was the process? There was a, a writer whom I admired very much, Harold Brotke. He would laugh yeah. at me and call me the magician because he said I could use words in a certain way. And the thing is, you, you wanted to get an element of control over the language, but I'm also a lifelong depressive. So yeah. when you're depressed, you can't find the music. So the music disappears, and sometimes it disappears for a long time, and then suddenly it comes back. And then when it comes back, you're galloping. You close your eyes and you gallop. And the book, in a way, writes itself, you know. And when that's happening, you're, you're actually, that magical thing happens of the unconscious taking over, the subconscious taking over. The unconscious takes over, over absolutely. The unconscious, as a matter of fact, our unconscious lives, as we all know, is sitting here with us and we're not even aware of it. And, you know, and it's there. It, 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 it controls us in a way that we're just, you know, but it's very evident in your writing because suddenly the names come from somewhere and, and particularly in this last book, Bitter Bronx, which I wrote because after Moses fucked that burrow by building that terrible highway, yeah. I mean, somebody had to, you know, and now he's being 
rehabilitated, you know. Uh, there was that one. Ma- there was that one museum uh, exhibit. Awful. But, uh, rid- absurd. But we're talking about Robert Moses, and people should read the Power Broker. The motherfucker. They, read... they should read Moses, the motherfucker. Well, I think that's yep. the subtitle of the book. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, which uh, is a great, you know, I think uh, a really excellent book. Oh, it, it, Robert Caro's book is the best, not only book about Moses, but about New York City. I mean, it's a masterpiece. It yeah. tells you things that, you know, it's my Bible. No question about mm-hmm. it. And, the, and Bitter Bronx is a companion to it, in a way. Well, it's it's a tiny coda to to what he did, because, you know, again, you know, when you're writing stories, you have to relearn the art of writing stories. As you know yourself, writing a screenplay is not writing a novel, so you have to relearn the art each time. Yeah, I had to write a, sh- a short story for a collection Larry Block was right. putting out last year. And, you know, it was th- 3,000 words or something, and having to write 3,000 words as a story was completely scary. It's scary, and it's almost impossible. And but I can't believe for of- you it's still scary. Oh, it's it's scary because stories are scary. You, you're writing novels and compressing them, you know, in ten pages because otherwise they don't work. You know, you mean they have to for you have the 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 depth and they have scope to have the depth of, a of a novel. They have to be a novel compressed, pressurized, you know, so that when it ends, it explodes in a way. I mean, do you ever? Take your short stories and turn them back into no, you know, turn them into no, novels. No, 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 no. I, 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 you know, sh- sh- it's a completely different art. It's an art, you know, that you know, uh, and and most often people who write brilliant stories aren't brilliant no- novelists, you know, because the art is, are so different. It's closer to poetry. Stories are closer to poetry. It seems to me. Yeah, I agree. It's r- it's rare uh, that. Yeah, there I, are I mean, exceptions. No, I mean Ethan Kanan just popped into my head, yeah, who I think are. is a wonderful short story right. writer, and I've never—I I think he's a brilliant yeah. writer—but I've never read a novel of his that I felt really had the same power for the whole of thing the as the stories yeah. do. Yeah. And the stories yeah. are the highest for me. They're gorgeous, magical, right. beautiful things. Yeah, exactly. I read the novels. I like yeah. the novels, but you somehow get the sense: oh, that that person is a is a writer. He's of a short short stories. story writer. Yeah. Um, but somehow you do both. Well, I did one book, and maybe I'll never be able to write a story again. But somehow I, I needed to talk about Moses, and and I needed to revisit this world, this this the life that existed, how it how it where it, how it was, how yeah. what he did cut right through it. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of the morphology to, to, to deal with the skeleton and to do it through, you know, remember, there, there's a story about Diane Arbus where I never mention her name. She's just D, and she writes about this Jewish giant. And when I saw that photograph of the Jewish giant, I said, my God, that's me. Her, the parents looking up at this oh, yeah. huge guy, I mean, and saying, well, this is the new world and we're the old world. I mean, my parents... Couldn't didn't have the slightest idea of who I was, or of what I wanted to be, or you know anything. Well, last night I, I, I wanted to, last night I read one of the stories in the book. I could I told you I haven't finished the book right. yet because sure. I'm shooting, but I've read a bunch of the stories, yeah. and I read the story last night, the Adonis, and right. um, which I loved, and I um, and in it this character uh, his first sort of night out uh, as he becomes. A figure of the city. Right. He runs into a girl who had, and I'm interested as a writer, because you know you as a writer, he he, he meets this girl, and this it had been a mystery to him where this girl had gone because she had vanished from right. the school. Yeah. And then he sees her, 
And then she leaves and he doesn't see her again and is left right. wondering. And then in that same interview with your buddy, he mentions a girl like that who you guys grew up with. Right. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how long, and that's, that had to have been 65 years ago. Yeah, well, you know... How long do you carry these things, and how do you decide <laughs> when to deploy but, them? No, Brian, but you know yourself as a writer that images sometimes stick with you. It doesn't really matter. They just... Now, when I went to junior high school, I won't mention the girl's name, but... It's in initials, the, You can find it. It's in this article. BB, okay, and she was a girl who probably had... She, she was like 13 or 14, and she had enormous breasts, and it just seemed to me, I was thinking, what's going to happen to this girl? And then, of course, I turned her into a model, and she disappears. So it seems to me that, that certain things stick with you, and then you find a place, maybe 50 years later, or 30 years later, or 10 years later, where suddenly it slips into your language almost unconsciously. My guest today is Jerome Charn. We'll be back after a short break. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. Braintree is the payment solution used by giants, Airbnb, Uber, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, Munchery. Braintree is helping solve the problems of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. I recently abandoned a mobile cart, but that was because I decided I had enough Ric Flair t-shirts and I really didn't need the one more. But maybe if I could have paid more quickly and easily with Braintree, I would have my fourth Ric Flair t-shirt, which is weird because he was only, I guess Flair's only like my fifth favorite professional wrestler of all time. Bruno San Martino would be one. Braintree gives you a full stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration. To learn more, and for your first 50,000 in transactions, be free. Go to BraintreePayments.com slash moment. Hey, Braintree, they support us. Let's support them. When did you decide consciously that you were going to write? How did it... How did it start, and then how did it begin to gain momentum, both personally and then, you know, professionally? Well, I was, I considered myself an artist, so I went to the high school of music and art, and because they were so hard up for boys, they had so many girls that they took people like myself who had no talent at all, and there I was sitting well, with... What is that bullshit posture, no talent at all? No, as an artist, I'm talking about... As, as a physical as a painter, painter. As a painter. Right. I just, I saw these wizards, and I realized this is not for me, so I said... Okay, I'm going to try language. I'm going to paint with words. And I remember I had a high school teacher, and, and, and you know, we were, we were in a class where you did these journals. And he said he wanted to do, have every student, student do a journal every, you know, every single day. I was the only fucking kid in the whole class who, who <laughs> took him seriously. Sure. So I handed in these journals, and then I got this grade at the end of the year that I'd never see. He gave me a hundred. Whoever gets the grade of a hundred? Right. I mean, that's crazy. But there I was, you know, writing and, and not having even the talent at that point because I hadn't read. Remember, here you are trying to write, and you haven't read any books. So I always saw myself as someone who wanted to learn how to do something. And because it gave me so much pleasure to do it, and because the mind sort of took off, you know that yourself, so that you're in another land. You're in this never sink. You know, you're in this, you know, this stasis where suddenly you're immortal. 
Right. And I, as somebody who was depressed, right. having those moments must have felt like transcendence, like yes. the way mystics talk about transcendence. Yes, it was a transcendence. Yeah. You're in a beautiful garden, like you're in a garden suddenly in an oasis. Well, you're everywhere and nowhere. You're not the person. You're not the physical person. The, the body is sort of, you know, you know, is moved out into some sort of hemisphere that, you know, into outer space. You are literally in outer space exploring. And then, and that feels to you and felt to you like the best of yourself, like the moments when you were the best of yourself. Yes, most powerful. Making love has very often has the sure. same kind of power when you're in love and making love. Yeah, Hemingway the, talked. About, yeah. I mean, Hemingway would talk about that yeah. too. But but there aren't too many times when you know, or seeing a beautiful painting or seeing anything of beauty, you know, seeing a woman on the street who. Who you know? She doesn't necessarily have to excite you; she just has to have a kind of beauty, and you say, "My God, this is this is a work of art." You're saying you that know? that can have a similar elevating effect. Yes, on you. you 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 seek out a kind of transcendence. You seek out beauty. It seems to me, and, and particularly, it seems like you enjoy seeking out beauty in places. And worlds that aren't beautiful. Exactly, because that's where the anomaly is. You know, that's where the contradiction is. You know, you 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 have these poisoned flowers, but they're still flowers. Yeah, I mean, I think about in, in Sizzling Chops, uh, the way you would describe the places. And I guess in the 40s is when they had the ping pong parlors in Times Square. Yeah, they had and them was, everywhere. They were everywhere. Yeah. But in, you describe in, in Times Square, I think, this sort of like... Uh, a couple of these places that were really marquee kind of places. Right, yeah. We, we, where there was a sort of grandeur. There was a grandeur, and, and that's one of the reasons why during World War II we had the best players in the world, because the great players came from Eastern Europe, and when Eastern Europe was invaded by the Nazis, you know, there was no ping pong. And suddenly in New York City you had five or six great players, among whom were Marty Reisman. But, that, but then for me, like the... Uh, when you then describe later in life, Marty and the other right. players, and they're in these, the opposite of places of grandeur. Yeah. It's almost well, even more clowns. touching to you, but it's almost more but touching to you. they clowns, you know, that you, you, you go from art to showmanship because, as you know, as a player yourself, it is a great art. I mean, we both envy those players who can just, you know do things that we'll never do, you know, that we'll never even understand how they're able to do it. So there is a kind of beauty to that perfect stroke, you know. Not having it, we understand the loss and the, the anguish of it. But, you know, still, but I still play. I don't care. But, it doesn't yeah, matter. But I, I mean, that, that same thing exists, doesn't it, when one, for me, when I regard a greater artist, when I regard yeah. someone, a writer, a filmmaker, a performer right. who's who's able to access, you know, the pure part of themselves, and I do think it's something you have done throughout your career. You found moments where you were able to hit the perfect chop shot um, right. on the page. Are you aware of it when it's ha- like? I understand that you go to this other place, but as you're writing something that's, you know, you've written fifty books. They, they're not all probably in your own estimation as good as each other. Yeah. Are because you, it, it depends on the circumstance, the subject, the you know, all everything. Are you aware together. of it though when you're connecting in that way, or do you have to take you two years later to look back and say, "Oh, I, I didn't quite connect." Well, you know, 
that's a that's a very difficult question. You think because you wouldn't be able to continue if yes. you didn't feel that connection was there. But you could be wrong. You could be doing a whole book and then you look at it and it's not there. And there's that always oh, that anxiety is 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 it really moving? Does it have its own ghost? Does it have its own apparition that's that's speaking for you from the unconscious? And we don't know because it's always the unconscious. And you know, I'm I'm attracted to criminals. You know, and, you know, not not because of the violence, but be, because th- there's a kind of sainthood in crime. And I remember speaking to to John Malkovich once. We, we were we were going to work on a project, and I told him about my brother, who really, you know, who was a homicide detective, and 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 was very very cruel. And he smiled, you know, and he said, and it was very brutal, and he smiled and he said, you know, there's a certain tenderness and cruelty. He's fucking right. He had it right. I had it wrong. <laughs> he's the best. He's the best. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is the best. Yeah. He's just so smart and knows yeah. all this stuff. But no, you said it exactly right. Uh, does it have its own ghost? Is what a wonderful way to express when something extra yeah. is going on in the work. Yeah. Right. When the deconstructionists, that's what they're really after, isn't it? The ghost that's the there. The ghost. The ghost that's hiding. That's hiding in it. And that's not some secret symbolism that was intended no. as symbolism. No. But it's this secret motor. Exactly. It is a motor. It's a force of energy that, that just overwhelms. And the writer, in your case... You can either be aware of it or catch it at moments, but sometimes maybe you're not aware of it, right? No, sometimes you're you're not aware of it. But remember, you you know, we know that that we're writing and we're revising, and sometimes when you revise, you begin to see things that you didn't have before, and that that's what's difficult. One, the element of writing is always expansion. You 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 know, you need to find the music that's going to push you forward. And then you're looking it over and you're cutting out half of what you wrote that you thought was so wonderful and isn't wonderful at all. You know, so the, you're, you know, the, the, we are many selves where, you know, the, the best writers are schizophrenics because there's so many selves speaking at the same time. Because you get so full uh, in order. It's such, you said this, so many, this uh, in such a clean way for me to understand. I, I've learned finally the pathology which is if I've just written something and I like if I've written something and I'm and it felt to me right. like don't fucking say a word about it please no don't because I will come across a table at you yeah yet in 48 hours I can dismantle the entire thing and keep the four good lines exactly and maybe and I don't understand why I can't see that there are only four good lines at six o'clock on the day that I wrote it yeah but Brian. You have four good lines. That's a miracle in itself, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but when I'm when I've written the four pages to get the four good lines, and I'm and I'm I would defend them to the death at right. the moment. You know, they're done, and I'll read the, later that night. And I'll you know you recognize and as always your wor- whatever um, is your worst bad habit. So oh wow, look how clever that you know for me like the clever yeah. turn of phrase, and then later those things like mock me. You know, you look at them and they they mock you. Yeah, no, yeah, I know. How dare you think that this was... Uh, yeah. So I now know, like, I can't show anything to anybody or even take myself seriously for two days after having... Basically, 48 hours later, I can read the thing. Well, if it's four days, you're lucky. <laughs> but the thing is, sometimes, you you know, you take out one sentence 
and the first sentence and third sentence come together in a way that something is wrong. You don't know what's wrong, and you say, okay, take out. And then it, then the music sort of fits together. I mean, it, it has its own life. I mean, we are not the real creators. There's a kind of psyche that creates for us. So you separate the writer from the work. I mean, you know, we're instruments doing something, writing about ourselves, about our history, but something else is coming out that has more power than our own history. Yes, and some would say, you know, I'm an atheist. Some would say it comes from somewhere else. But I think what you're saying is it comes from everything you've carried. Exactly. You know, the burden that you're born with somehow, uh, you know, uh, strangles you. What kills you also sort of keeps you alive. And that's the contradiction because we're dying every day in some sense. And yet somehow, you know, we pursue, we move on, we push on, you know. Yeah, hard as it is, brutal as it is to it's do. It's brutal. It's brutal to get up, you know, and 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 work on a text and and say something is wrong and you don't know what's wrong, so you're going to move ahead and then you're going to go back and revise it and then you may get rid of the whole thing. I mean, you're sometimes lumped in with genre writers, you know, yeah. because you've written a series of crime right. books about the same character. Yeah. You've you've been in that in that world and then some I mean, over the last bunch of years, it's become clear you're considered someone who does literary crime fiction. Um, I always have seen a kinship between you, you know, Paul Auster and and Murakami in some way that has to do with tone and rhythm. Right. And I, as I said in that tweet we went back and forth on, you know, I'm not smart enough to understand why, but there's almost a fatalism and a spiritual, a, 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 a love of beauty that compete with one another in the work, Uh, a fatalism and a wish for romanticism. Yeah, we're always we're always wishing for the romantic and and somehow <laughs> we're slapped in the face, you know, but but it doesn't matter. It, it you know, Brian, it doesn't matter. The, the the fact that you're able to do the work itself is the victory. The fact that you're able to do it it's not a question of what happens to it later because we don't know the value of anything. Of course, with films, it's a little bit different because there's a lot of money involved and either it's going to be made or it's not going to be made or either a book is going to be published or not published. But we have no idea what the value of any of these things are. No, you don't know for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. The, uh, well, I wondered. Sometimes, though, you must know and you must... Are, you know, one of the things that I think is unfair is I I don't think that you're famous in the way that you should be. Yeah, okay. And people write, all these people write it. I mean, all these incredible writers, Tom Bissell and Jonathan right. Latham and Shabon, talk about the fact that everybody should know who you are. Paul Oster and Murakami, you're famous. Yeah. And you're, well, you're um, highly regarded. And I'm wondering whether you've made peace with that, how you've made peace with that, whether it bugs you at all. Oh, it, well, look, first of all, it's destructive to the psyche because it prevents you from doing the work that you want to do. But remember, I have that fame in France. It came. Right. We don't, I don't know why, but it just came. And now I have that fame in Germany. You know, don't, don't ask me why, but it, it's there. For, for the French, maybe it's because they understand the... The existential. No, no, no. What that these crime novels are really novels about play because they understand, you know, they have a whole 
sort of aesthetic about crime novels that we don't have. So they see the sense... Oh, I don't know that. They see know the that. sense of play. I mean, they're the first ones who, who understood that, 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 you know, Hammett was a great American writer. We, right. You know, for us, sure. he just was... They made the best crime movies, bar none, for sure. Yeah. Melville's ma- Melville made the best Melville, crime movies. Yeah, and remember, look at his name. Melville was not, yes. you know, you know he, he, yeah. he stole it from an American from writer. And from American crime novelists and crime writers. So, sure, you wish, I mean, fame gives you one virtue. It allows you to do whatever you want. And I can't do whatever I want because you're, you know, you're stuck within a kind of world of commerce that holds you down in a way. So this is, this is what the, the real predicament is. You know, it, it, it forces you sort of to move at a much slower pace, to be paranoid and to be cautious. <laughs> And you don't want to be cautious. Wait, why does it force you to be paranoid and, ca- and cautious? I mean, you've written all these books and done all this stuff. So, in what way has it? Af- in what in what way has that af- has it affected you? Well, you know, you know, the basic part of my work hasn't been published at all. I have many texts that haven't been published. And of I what? What? Of what sort? Novels. I mean, I did a novel on Jerzy Kaczynski, for example. And, um, oh, I'd love to read that. Wow, really? Well, when, I, uh, what's it called? It's called Jerzy Kaczynski. You know, and it's a novel about Kaczynski. At what, time, what yeah. point in his life? It, it retells his whole life. It retells his whole life from six points of view. I mean, from. Um, and you've tried to get this book. Published. No, it was it was commissioned by by a, a French publisher, so it was published in France. But now I'm thinking of maybe publishing it here. So, you know, there, there, there are many texts that are sitting there maybe waiting to be revised. So, I mean, this is what you have to live with. You know, you, you, you go on, you go on to the next text. Have you found uh, has, that this book after the Lincoln book got you more, a little bit more uh, attention here? Well, probably because of Lincoln, you know, because of the subject and because, uh, you know, no one would be crazy enough to do a novel on Lincoln and Lincoln's voice. I mean, would only be a lunatic like myself who would, you know, who would want to do it. When so, you're doing something like that as a, as an artist, as a writer, do you tell people what you're working on when you're working on it? Do you do you tell no one? What's your own sort of superstition or practice? Well, I don't know. I mean, the the way I've been working with with my current publisher, Liverite, is I tend to. Uh, give them 80 pages and see if it's something that they really like. And then we, you know, we start dealing and start So you wrote 80 pages it. of that book. I wrote 80 pages of Lincoln. I wrote a novel on Emily Dickinson and did it that way. Yeah. Right. And both of which they published. But yeah. so that's how, you, that's how you did it. And then they said, yeah. And then you're, then you just go and, and work. And what's your, what's your working rhythm? Like how many hours a day do you work? Well, I'm getting old. I'm getting old, Brian. So, I used to be able to work morning, evening, and night. For example, when I was living in Paris I, and teaching full time, I was in New York more than I was in Paris because, you know, remember you have Christmas vacation, you have the summer vacation, you have the spring vacation, and what I would do is put two weeks together and come to New York. And when I was here, I, you know, I would work from, I would work all day and sometimes all night and wouldn't be tired. Just with coffee. Just with coffee and going out to eat. That was very important that you not, I did not stay home uh, unless, you know, um, I was working. 
when when you identify you identify depression, and my wife writes novels about dep- right. her novels are all about depression in, in one way or another. Um, God bless her, but we but we both don't believe in God. Yeah, uh, but right, but uh, yeah, her 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 she wrote a book called I Smile Back that then she wrote the screenplay and the movie played Sundance this year and it'll be out in a couple of months. And her new book is called The Hesitation Wounds and it's coming out. And it takes her eight years to write these books. And I've watched her grapple with right. earlier depression. And she's a big advocate for, for for medication. For years she wasn't medicated. Right. And she's a big advocate medica- uh, that medication can save people. A lot of people are a- against it. How do you manage because you talk about being a depressive. Have you just managed it through the work and through exercise? Did you ever try medication? Does it I, I work? I tried medication and, and it works for a while. But, uh, I mean, as, as we all know, you know, it's very, very hard to understand where the source of the depression comes from. You know, for those who aren't depressed, they don't understand. And, and you don't understand when it goes away. And suddenly it, it does go away. You think it's never going to go away. And then for no apparent reason, it, it goes away. So you have to live with it. If you don't live with it, I mean, what you know, it, it prevents you from, uh, it terrorizes you. It's the phantom. But maybe it's, it is that ghost behind what we want to that do. You mean when you can then do the work, you feel that it's informed by whatever you've gone through. It might be. I, 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 Brian, I, w- I wouldn't really know. I mean, uh, you know, is it, you know, we, you know. It's very easy to talk about, let's say, in writing a novel about Kaczynski, to talk about his work because he was so crazy, you know, and and to try to find the source of his craziness. And I think I have found it. But that doesn't matter. But, but, I mean, if he were writing a novel about me, what what would he be saying? I mean, I don't know. Well, it's the great... Mailer had that thing that... uh, Mailer said a lot of crazy stuff, but one of my favorite things that he said was the only thing a novelist can't write about is a better novelist. <laughs> yeah, he he had a, he, he was a a wonderful character Norman. I mean, I really loved him. I I I knew him and and, and unlike most people, I thought he was one of the most generous people there ever was and he was warm and he was a softy. He pretended to be so tough, but he was a real softy. And he he wrote a couple of really Great. Wonderful books. I mean, Why Are We in Vietnam, to me, yeah. st- still stands as yeah. like uh, a great American Wonderful. A great American uh, book. Um, but do you think that do you think that happy people can be writers? Have you met happy people you think are good writers? I'm sure they can be. I mean, I, you know, what, 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 you know, how could I speak for someone else? Well, I mean, you've uh, seen, you taught, you've been around, you've, yeah. you've been around writers a lot. I mean, but you, I, you, I know that that the talent is very, very rare, and and also those who have the gift don't always, you know, nourish it. They very often destroy it. So, in what way? Um, well, I mean, let's say. St- looking at starting writers and you see a tremendous gift and then 10 years later it's it's gone it's it's disappeared and you know in, in other words what you have to have and and you know yourself is an incredible persistence and you need a kind of you know um, a voice inside you that allows you to do the work that it gives you permission to do it no matter what is out there even if everybody is against you fuck them Fuck them. Permission is the entire... Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that. Yeah. Yeah. You have to find a way to give yourself 
to permission. Permission. You know, to be nice to yourself once instead of lacerating yourself, you know. T- to give yourself the permission, like, every day to do, a, like, uh, even if it's just for that two hours. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, and, and if you write four pages and, and you keep four sentences, that's four sentences you didn't have before. But how does a kid who grew up in the circumstances you did, definitely not told, hey, you're special by your dad. No. How, how do you how do you find a way to take mercy on yourself? You personally, Jerome. Well, I I was I mean I came to reading late, but when I read James Joyce and I saw the music that he had, I said, "My god, I mean, this is so beautiful. Every single sentence in the Dubliners is just I I said, "Okay, I will never have his music." But I'm going to steal some of his music. You know, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to lie. I'm going to, you know. And also, <laughs> I have to find a way. Uh, yeah. How old I, are you at this point when you're doing I this? I was, let's say, 20, 22. Look, I, I was all set to be a, a professor of Russian. I was studying Russian, and I couldn't. One day, I saw I could go to the classroom. I couldn't be in the classroom. I, I couldn't study literature. Too painful for you. It was too. I just wanted to write. You know. So, uh, and also. Uh, my, I had several plans. One was to be an officer in the Air Force. I said, okay, because if you go to the, you know, if you become an officer in the Air Force for 20 years, then you retire. Okay, I'll be 40 years old. The James Salter plan. Okay, exactly, which was a great plan. Okay, but I, I so I, I went out, you know, Humpty Dumpty goes to Long Island and meets these officers, yeah. and they say, who's the Secretary of Defense? I don't know. Who's the Secretary of the Army? Who the fuck knows? What has that got to do with my being an officer in the Air Force? So they said, you're not the right you're not officer, officer material. material. So that plan was fucked. You know, so, uh, you know, I had to find the means, and, you know, I always saw it as a lifelong apprenticeship. And I, you know, whether I was going to be, look, you always want to be published, you know, but that was not going to deter me. I, I just was very stubborn. You know, you I say the stubborn. talent is stubborn is hugely important, clearly, yeah. to, to this. Uh, yeah. You were determined, to, you finally, I mean, that feeling of not being able to walk in, I think oh, anyone who's become an artist for their life, like, uh, can recognize that moment when the other path is as painful as depression. You know, that other path becomes com- just untenable. Right. Too painful, like an anvil to the head or something. Um, and then you had the talent and the grit. When people come to you and they want to be writers, can you kind of tell when you read something of theirs if it could ever happen for them? Have you ever been surprised where you thought they couldn't and they could? Like the talent versus grit and desire thing. How does that... You've seen this for a long time. Yeah, you I've come seen out? I, I, what, 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 you know, it's a strange combination of humility and ego. You know, you have to be humble before the page, and yet, and yet you have to have a certain ego that you can write the page. But in, in terms of that blank page, you have to be incredibly humble about what you're doing, it seems to me. And, and that's very, very difficult because... Um, you know, uh, what, what I find about, let's say, writing schools, everyone talks against writing schools, and I say, what's wrong with it? You have a community of writers. You're going to, wh- whether you continue writing or not, you're going to have friends that, you know, who are suffering in the same way that you're suffering. So what's wrong with it? You know, there's nothing wrong with Humble, it. Humble, resolute, 
delusions of grandeur. You kind of need all three, right? Yeah, the delusions of grandeur can sort of take you to the madhouse, but that doesn't matter. But you kind of have to idea. You I have to do, be a little bit mad to be, you know, to have a project, a lifelong project of wanting to write books. You have to be a little bit insane, you know. You have and, to be a little bit And for crazy. you, it still turns you on as much to be able to write, you know, four good pages and know you're making progress in something. It still has the capacity to transport you? It does. You know, it, it, in other words, I can't work as hard, but I'm playing a lot more ping pong, so that's okay, you know. You can't work as many hours. Well, do you still work the, on a daily basis? I do work on a daily basis, but but you know, when I'm playing ping pong and you know that yourself, there's a kind of rhythm that's not so different when you're in the rhythm of playing. It's not so different from writing. And now I've found a, a rec center uh, you know, three blocks from here, you know, a, a parks department center where I can play three, four times a week. How you do know? you find good opponents there? They're good enough. I mean, it doesn't really matter. You know, what does it matter? I'm not there to win. I mean, as a matter of fact... But when you walk in there and you just are this uh, older guy dominating, it must be pretty, uh, it's pretty amusing to them. It's pretty humiliating, but so what? I mean, I'm not there to humiliate. I'm not there to destroy. I'm there to have fun. It sounds like you're saying, you know, it's also that you probably like part of it, the destroying isn't No, bad. I really don't. No, I'm just practicing my shots and, almost you know, in a martial art, you know, almost yeah, in a martial and, arts and, and, sort of and way. The, the one writer I play with, Tom LeClaire, who's a novelist and a critic, is better than I am. So it doesn't really matter. And, and he's caught up with the idea of winning. I'm not. I'm only caught up in the exercise of it. You know. No, what I loved, you and I played together three times. And exactly. what I, years ago, when I yeah. went through a phase of really trying to become good at it, for the same reasons you're talking about, I, I, I thought it was um, a beautiful, incredibly hard game, simple to become okay at, yeah. impossible to become great at, like, you know, right. and... Um, we were too old to begin with. You well, know, I was too to, old when I started. You no, know, we but, were both too old. Uh, to but I played as a kid, but I didn't take it seriously. But no, what I loved was we would play, and then we went to this Chinese place and had right. lunch. And I did feel like... Uh, for me, very, I mean, touched that uh, you'd spend the time because I wasn't in your league as a player, you know, nor, nor as a writer. And so to get to do that was um, was really great. And, and watching, you know, and so since then, I've, I, uh, I had kids, you know, which is something you didn't, right. you didn't do. No, I never had kids. I mean, it, it's probably a little bit sad, but okay. I mean, I is it sad to you? Well, no, it's not sad. I have a cat. So, I mean... <laughs> No, but but it's not. Well, it speaks to the sacrifice that you made, though, to yeah. your work. But I did have some kind of incredible thing happen to me. I mean, I had Which was? A, I had a a, uh, a student of mine forty six years ago. Okay, at at the high school of performing arts, and she was fifteen, sixteen, a dancer, and I met her. You know. Through Facebook, you know, five years, uh, five years ago, and and she'd been through her life, and and I'd been through my life, and we've been together ever since. You know, it's one of those magical events where you meet someone from your past, and suddenly you don't have to go through the rituals of courtship because there is the, already that familiarity, 
And, you know, the love comes, you know, uh, in, a, in a very extraordinary and mysterious way. How often does that happen that you meet someone from 45 years ago and suddenly you pick up your life as if those 45 years never took place? It's weird. Was life it an extraordinary weird. surprise to you? It was an incredible surprise, but on the other on the other hand, it wasn't a surprise. So I, everything is surprising. So it doesn't well because that is I mean in your work, those kind of events can happen. Exactly, they right? always in happen. your work that stuff happens. Yeah, so it could have been my own fiction, but it wasn't fiction. You know, so did uh, it occur to you in that way? This is like living out something. And in- no, no, not at all, not at all. And 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 also, I never had a pet. And suddenly, uh, oh, she brought a pet along. You know, no, she had. We had to to keep this wild, feral animal uptown. This animal that hated everyone. And suddenly, I wake up, and the cat is like it, there's two inches of space, and the cat is lying there. The cat connected to me. Now the cat died, and so we had to look for another one. And suddenly, I'm you know I'm at the shelter, and I see this strange white beast, and I say. I love this cat. Huh. <laughs> it's like having a child. I'm telling you. I can't, you know, Brian, I'm anxious now leaving the house because I've left her alone. The cat. Yeah, the cat. She, she you know, she looks at me, you know, and, and she says, right. where the fuck are you going? Jesus Christ. I mean, this, the uh, Murakami kinship is really yeah. keen now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm understanding it much more. I mean. Cats. Cats. Cats and, um, uh, you know, the, the possibility of relationship from long ago and uh, not not having children. Yeah. And making this choice. What's well, maybe your, your books are your children, Lenore. You feel that way a little bit. Yeah, maybe, your books maybe, are your children. maybe they are. You know, maybe they aren't. Maybe, you know, in, in other words, when you've had a, a, a sort of wounded childhood, you don't seek out families. You seek out isolation. That's one reason why it was so surprising to me that Lenore and I could come together because I was really like a werewolf. You know, I was a sort of a wounded, you know, creature, and suddenly I could be with someone. You know, it's strange. You could be, and you could give of yourself in that way. You take the risk. I'm saying you could take the risk. I could take the risk. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I can give. I mean, I. W- I why do you know. think you were prepared to take the risk in your seventies? Um, because somehow I was touched. Uh. I was touched that, you know, that this creature came out of the past and suddenly, you know, the past became the present. It's weird, you know, but it, you know, look, we could have not disconnected. We could have gone our separate ways, but somehow we didn't. It didn't happen that way. That's what a beautiful thing that is. It's a great thing. And I remember we were talking on the street, and this was just after we had reconnected, and there were two women, and they heard us talk about this, and they began to applaud. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, I'm sure people listening feel the same way. And do you think it's affected your work at all? Having somebody that you're in love with? Now you're going into territory that's dangerous. Why? We don't talk about actual relationships and work because we don't know what the connection is. We really don't know. know. What do you mean we don't know? We don't really know. We don't know. know, uh, I'm saying can the state of being, but I guess the question I'm asking is can the state of giving yourself 
to something other than the work. Yeah. Not just students as a teacher. It hasn't hurt the work. Can Let's it affect, it. I'm saying, does it, does it, do you think, affect the whole being, the artist in you as well? Or do you keep that part separate? I think it is separate, to be truthful. Yeah, what's I think the real is, thing? I think it is separate. I think that one could be absolutely miserable and do incredible work. One could be happy and do incredible work. I think that beast that's inside you needs is you know is 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 trying to escape uh, under every kind of circumstance, and either it's going to or it's not. It's a beast. It's a wild beast. It's uncontrollable. You know, we don't know. We don't know what it means. You must feel the same way. You know? I like the way you say it. Uh, I mean, the way you say it is really, uh, you really articulate it yeah. um, well. You know, I'm not a depressive. Uh, I've had moments of it. I understand it. Yeah. My wife lived it. And so the way in which it pulls you from that, I don't, I, it does pull me from my regular life right. yeah. for sure, 100%. Uh, you know, the way in which your characters can yearn can kind of understand their circumstance yet yearn. It's interesting that you in the end here have found some, you know, you've now sort of found something. How, was it your worldview all along, though, that, that, that the mere state of yearning, of wanting, of trying to find a way to hope despite circumstance was essential? Oh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I thought I would never be with anyone. I thought. So, I right, mean, personally, you had no. The characters could no hope, hope at all. but you had no hope. I had no hope. I, and not only had no hope, I had no interest. I wasn't looking to be with someone. I wasn't trying to be with someone. It happened. It surprised me. It was a wonderful surprise. Isn't it great that one can be? Yeah. Surprised? I mean, I hated cats. I would have strangled them, and suddenly I have this cat, and I kiss her, and I stroke her, I take out her shit, I do everything, I feed her. You know, I'm the slave of this cat, and she shows me her ass, she sits on my chest, and somehow, you know, you're in this very, very strange world that, you know, that that possesses you. Now, the cat enters your fiction as a kind of wild beast. I mean, everything becomes fictional. This will appear in my fiction. So we don't, you know, everything is material. You know that yourself, Brian. Well, yeah, because you just said, you know, this very strange world that possesses you. Yeah. And if people don't know the work of Jerome Charon, it is a very strange world that possesses yeah. you. I mean, that is what you manifest. And I'm, I'm so grateful to, to know you, man. And, and I have to say your, your work, to me, just gets deeper and richer and better. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, we have to play ping pong together again, but I have to work on my game first. No, don't because I won't be able on, to keep the ball in play. Don't work on your I game. I won't be able to keep pleasure, the ball in Brian. Play. Oh, I, I, I have to I'm at least not, get to where I could keep it in play. I'm not out to to win. You know, we're just gonna play. We can. It's three blocks from here. No, you, I'm do I'm, your do your radio show and come over and we'll. Well, no, we're going to play, and and uh, I commit to that. And I, I have to talk to you about I'm I'm determined now even more to make a movie about the moment I really want to make them uh, find a way. I think I saw this in thinking about doing this podcast. I started thinking again about the movie, right. and I think I understand how to tell it in a way that builds to the moment. That, it would be a that wonderful he, story that you build to the moment where he. Yeah. Uh, has to face the person with the other bat, and yeah. everything changes. I don't. I don't think I'm that interested in what happens after that. But I think that the, 
He was the king of the world until that moment. And nobody the, understands that. Yeah. The world doesn't know no. that that guy. Yeah. Even though they made a documentary a couple of years ago. It doesn't matter. And I was part of that documentary and he's worshipped as a hero in spin. And suddenly you realize that Marty's dead. How did he die? I mean, I just played with him three weeks before. He seemed in great shape. It's, this, is, this guy was a genius and he didn't really, he didn't nourish his own genius. He didn't nourish, he, he wasn't able to nourish. Nourish your own genius. Yeah. That is Great, and that's a great note on which to end. Um, you can find Jerome Charon's books everywhere on Amazon. Yeah. Your website is it's it's jeromecharon.com. Jeromecharon.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Uh, you can also email me themomentbk at gmail.com. Do not send me manuscripts or screenplays or anything like that. Um, read Jerome Charon's books. They're very often fucking twisted but they uh, really reward the time you spend reading them uh, and so go out right now and either audible it or buy one of his books I don't do this right I don't sell out for the people on the show very often but I'm telling you you need to know this guy's work so Trump thanks for doing this thank you so much bro. all right see you soon people